This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Welcome to The Common Good. This program aims to build resilience in the community across three sectors, public, profit, and not-for-profit. We ask the question, what practical steps can we take in this post-COVID-19 era to become resilient? Welcome, Keith Morrison. Um, welcome to the show. And um, how have you been doing? Well, um, I'm fine, thank you. Yes, I'm interested by what you're going to ask. And I thought I'll start the show by just asking you a little bit about yourself, uh, you know, if you can give us a bit of a background of, you know, what you've been doing in the last few years or so, um, just your career background, uh, if we can start from there. Well, I was brought up in the country, in um, central Otago, and the environment was always something I felt very close to. Um, but at the same time, I was, I was always very interested in art. And then there were some sort of tragedies in my teenage years, and I, I started realising there, there were bigger questions needed to be um, answered to sort of life meaning. And so it wasn't long before spirituality and so on. Um, the role of religion and so on became a very important part of my life. And whilst I was, did very well at school, that didn't interest me because I had these other concerns I needed to really explore. And at the time, it seemed to me, art seemed to be the way to uh, explore that. So for about seven years, I, I worked as a an artist uh, while I was working part-time on local farms and so on. And through that process, I came to realise the, the need for sort of self-discipline and so on. And, and the link to sort of religious practice, if one was going to grow, uh, sort of had this strong sense that I, I really didn't have anything to say unless I started to grow as a person I'd, there's no use of me trying to, to express myself that I had something I needed to have something to express, something worthwhile to say. And so I then started uh, going to monasteries, uh, Christian monasteries, um, there's one in particular in the North Island. And there, to my surprise, I was persuaded to go to university that I should go back to university, that that's actually what my talents were, which is not what I was wanting to hear, but I went there to find out what to do, so that was what a message I got, so I did that, and, and did very well at that, and so I got scholarships and carried on and got a PhD. Um, but while I was doing my PhD, I, I became very drawn to once again to those same questions, role of culture and art and religion in environmental management. I, as I started to think 
carefully about it in the doctoral studies, um, that's what always came back to my mind. So then I, I realised that there are other people doing the same sorts of things, which is of course what you discover when you do research. And um, found that there were people around the world who were seeing this need to recover the role of traditional culture. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I, um, I explored what it would look like to um, reorientate or deconstruct and re reconstruct um, methodologies, um, environmental management for um, to be able to incorporate the values and insights and worldviews of traditional cultures. So postmodern reconstruction of floodplain management methodologies, that was my doctoral research. And then I got my first job at the University of South Pacific, based in Fiji, in, in Samoa. In Samoa. And um, that sort of just emphasised that and I began to actually experience um, on a daily basis um, what it means to live in a traditional culture with very strong understanding of environmental processes. And so that sort of just kept developing my understanding of that. And then I got a job at Lincoln University teaching human ecology. And that was, did that for, oh, I mean, 15 years. And, but in the New Zealand context, it was, it was a lot more difficult because um, even though I, I put the effort into learning to learn Māori and, and it was involved as much as I could in the uh, cultural practice of the indigenous, the Tangata Whenua here, um, was not like living in a village in Samoa. It was not the same sort of all-encompassing um, mm -hmm. participation in that yeah. sort of timeless worldview. And, um, and I wasn't sort of dealing with um, the leaders from these communities. Um, it, was, it was a totally different sort of situation, um, educating people in Lincoln University. Um, though the international students, um, I had a great rapport with them because a lot of them were in the same situation. They're coming from countries with those traditional cultures mm -hmm. and so on. Yeah. Um, but what I found in New Zealand is that there were a lot of young people who had the same sort of ideals inside them. And a lot of them ended up wanting to study things like human ecology and environmental management. So I noticed that young people innately have this, even though they don't have a cultural background anymore to nurture it, it's still inside everybody. And there's some, mm. some people get through the education system to university and have still got that inside them. Mm. And uh, so I found they were the ones who um, would respond well to what I was, I was lecturing. And so for me, the research I was doing while I was at Lincoln, as well as keeping the, the work in the Pacific, and particularly in Samoa, was how to nurture that 
sort of experiential environmental education mm. among the youth in New Zealand. And um, because it is the experience which is, to me, it's, it's key. Um, it's not just an academic, it's, it's not an ideology. Yeah. It's actually so that's also the spirituality thing. It's not just ideas, it's not just beliefs, it's actually experience. And people need to need be given the opportunity to experience these things. And so that, that became to me, I wrote, that's what I could contribute to New Zealand. So I did a lot of retreat work, taking people in tramps and retreats into the mountains, into the wilderness. And um, that seemed to be very successful and did it for the um, natural resource engineering students at the University of Canterbury. It was a compulsory course for them, as well as for um, human ecology students at Lincoln University. Did that for quite a few years. Um, and then the Chancellor at Lincoln University, um, um, at the time it was the UNESCO chair, and she could see that UNESCO was um, promoting human ecological mm. approaches. Yeah. And she was willing to connect up um, University of South Pacific and Lincoln University um, with the UNESCO chair to um, facilitate this sort of dialogue. Okay. And so I started heading towards that and we had um, a sustainable community development forum mm -hmm. which was running and we actually would meet at Coffee Culture at Lincoln and in um, the Art Centre at Christchurch. So it was all about dialogue. So once again it was the experience, it was moving away from just sort of cold, academic, ambitious sort of, it was actually really experiencing because yeah. people had a passion for learning because they were really interested. In so it wasn't really just a tick boxing activity, no, it just was, was getting some marks, it was really because people in, inherent yeah. interest in yes. there. Yeah. Okay. So to me that sort of idealism is, uh, is a good thing. And so it needs to be nurtured so it doesn't become cynical, that it actually can fulfil its potential. Um, unfortunately, um, the Chancellor left the university and then that plan sort of dissolved and I was actually made redundant from Lincoln. And so... Was it during the, um, the global financial yes, crisis around that time, was it? Times. Yeah, I see. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, Lincoln sort of turned in on itself um, and was ceased to be interested in this sort of thing. Um, so then I, I had to become independent. And in, in many ways, that's given me a lot of freedom because I don't have to sort of prove myself the value of this, it's, it's just mm. that, um, and um, of course, uh, gaining incomes then becomes the bigger problem. Challenge, yes. yes. But money's never really been that important to me, so um, I'm very fortunate. My family are happy to live in a village, and uh, that's what we prefer. And we've got a batch at Salon Hut, so we've managed to have the flexibility to not get caught into a, into a mortgage trap. And so we've had to keep that freedom.
um, spending a lot of time in the mountains and also in the village in Samo and my creative work. Mm. And, uh, and then I uh, had the opportunity to work in, mm. back in the University of the South Pacific, based in Suva. Uh, and I was on the EU project on climate change adaptation. And the um, and had the opportunity then to interact with uh, communities all through the Pacific, and that was, that was a, a wonderful opportunity. And I'm still sort of publishing work and reflecting on those experiences. And uh, even though I'm back here now, back at Sawa Huts in our batch, we're doing the writing from there. I see, great. Thank you so much for giving that um, brief insight into your background. We're going to take a short break and when we come back we're going to discuss more into climate change. Thank you so much. Uh, for staying with us and now we're back again discussing climate change with Keith, uh, Keith Morrison. Now if someone who doesn't know anything about climate change, how would you explain to them? Well, when I, I'm going to answer that in a slightly roundabout way by saying that when I first arrived in Suga, I started hearing um, reports about what the communities were saying about climate change. And it struck me as extraordinarily wise, because what they were saying is, oh, climate change is us being corrected for our wrong development. And to me, that was extremely wise, because that's a very good summary about what climate change is. Because that's exactly what it is. It's it's a natural response to what we're doing to um, the natural environment through our, what we consider to be development. And we're getting some feedback that if we do this, this is what's going to happen. So mm -hmm. um, yeah. it's giving us information as about is this actually what we should be doing here. So there's a cause and effect. Yes, there's a system involved. So it's, it's a type of feedback mm -hmm. that we need to learn from and if we don't well and it's in effect us choosing for it yeah. to continue yeah. mm -hmm. and what we need to do is make the link to what is causing it okay and that's where um traditional cultures and so on and so on come in because um the traditional cultures <laughs> don't cause climate change and didn't cause climate change. They managed to live in a way which didn't create this problem and this sort of feedback. So it's a feature of what a certain type of colonial culture, mm -hmm. I've got to say it, <laughs> imperial culture which spread over the world over the last few hundred years, what yeah. it's done to the world. And that we're now getting feedback. This is mm -hmm. what's going to happen. Right. And um, so we need to reflect on what we're doing. Um, do we want this or not? Right. And um, so that, in short, is 
what you would think, uh, say climate change is all about. Uh, it's mm -hmm. the cause and effect that humans are you know, doing and in response to what the mm -hmm. climate is doing to us, I think. Um, how have we caused um, okay. climate change? We've caused climate change by um, using the natural world in such a way which is changing it. And so the ecological processes are adapting to what we're doing to it. Like if you cut down a forest or burn a forest, you then don't have trees, you then have grass and so on. So these are, it's an ecological response and then there's ecological risk and then there'll be ecological um, regeneration. And over so many hundred years, we get forests mm. again eventually. Mm. Now, these are, these are ecological processes. So what we're doing is that we are acting in such a way that we are continually bringing ecosystems back to base level, as if it's a, a desert. Mm -hmm. You think about when you plough a... Or, um, uh, you sort of uh, spray a paddock, so it's all brown, and then uh, plough it, Mm -hmm. You're basically making a desert and then you're letting that ecological restoration start. Mm -hmm. In a few hundred years, that'll be forest again. Right. After one year, you do the same thing again. So you're keeping it always in a state of um, right back at the beginning. And that's the very lowest sort of ability to have carbon um, capture. Mm -hmm. Now, natural systems don't know about carbon the capture, that's just a human construct. Mm. But they will adjust to um, that situation. Okay. And so the climate change is a natural adjustment to us doing this to these ecosystems. Okay. And it's not just the land ecosystems, it's the um, seas as well. So mm. the corals <coughs> are being replaced, the corals are going to be replaced with algae. And seaweed, okay. because it's too um, acid for the um, for the corals. So these right. changes occurring, natural changes. So climate change isn't just about creating more pollution. So we're also changing the climate by the way we are fishing, by the way we are um, doing our agriculture, the crop rotation. Is that right? Yes, it is. Like we know in New Zealand, and, um, I think it's up to nearly half of our climate change um, impact is through agriculture. Mm -hmm. right. Now, if we did agriculture differently, yeah. I mean, we could actually be capturing, it could be, have a negative effect. Right. Um, but we are choosing to have a certain type of production which is changing the, mm -hmm. the climate. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Now, um, <clears throat> so some cr critics would say that oh, climate change has always been part of, um, you know, it's always been going. It's always been that cycle and humans haven't really caused um, grave effect to it. How do you counter those? Um, well, there's two points. One is that there's a difference between climate variability and climate change. 
So the climate variability is the natural variation which occurs. Mm-hmm. And that, that is always occurring and it's occurring now. That's why people say, oh, but we just had the snowstorm. Well, and it was the coldest winter and so on. And uh, Well, that's just variability. What climate change is talking about is the average, how the average is changing. Mm-hmm. Now, that average also does change naturally through sunspots and so on. But what, you know, put this, humans are part of that natural system. And so humans, what we're doing now is having an impact on that process. Now, that is not something which is going to ultimately harm the process. The process will continue, but it is going to impact on us humans because um, it'll change us and make us mm-hmm. not able to do that. Right, so we're either a beneficiary or an adversary to the climate change. Um, climate change, we can either see it as a friend, which is teaching us what we need to change, mm-hmm. or an enemy if we're a slow learner, right. and we'll just get hit more and more and more because we, we're not learning. I <laughs> see, yes. And um, we're making the same mistakes all the time. Yes, and so <clears throat> if that's the case, then nature will continue to um, put us in our place until we stop. Mm. You know, they also say that, oh, you know, we've had evolution, we've had dinosaurs that died, we've had, you know, major volcanoes and floods and things like that, and we have evolved, and that's sort of, that's just continuing. We are not really doing that much of a damage to the climate or the environment or Earth. As, um, well, that evolution is exactly right. I mean, that, that's, that is correct. Um, and so we could be like the dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. If we are unable to adapt, yeah. we will go like the dinosaurs. <laughs> that's, okay, that's, that's worrying. That is exactly what will happen. Yeah. Um, but the dif- difference between humans and the dinosaurs is that our species, and this is where spirituality comes in, mm-hmm. we're not only biological, we also have a spirit, which means that we can create cultures which modify our behaviour. Dinosaurs couldn't modify their behaviour. Mm-hmm. We humans can. Yeah. So it won't actually be all humans who disappear. It'll be those human cultures which don't adapt. But where there are cultures where people continue to be adaptive and responsive to their ecosystems, they will survive. Mm-hmm. So what's actually happening is an evolutionary process to select against the cultures which are being self-destructive. So it won't be all humans will go, but there'll be a lot of misery, in particular in the so-called devout countries, because they're the ones which are so in need of changing. Mm-hmm. Because it's, and this is where there's a certain arrogance in the West, which I, I noticed in the Pacific too, that. Coming in climate change, we're going to help all these people with climate change. Well, they're not the ones who are actually needing the help. The people who need the help are the people living in Europe, in the United States, in New Zealand, Australia. Because mm-hmm. they're the ones, we're the ones, who are going to have to change. 
our behaviour. Right, I see. People in the islands, apart from a few places which will go underwater, mm -hmm. they'll just go up the, up the mountain a bit and they won't need to change your lifestyle much at all. Right. The way we are functioning is the, way, is the only way right now we know of how to feed so many people around the world, for example. Um, if we were to change those ways, uh, wouldn't we be restricting and uh, limiting our production compared to what it I is now? I think it's the exact opposite. What we're doing now is not yeah. actually producing food, we're producing money. Um, if we really were concerned with producing food, we'd be helping communities mm -hmm. to be able to be self-sufficient. But that's not our interest. Actually, what we're interested is helping them make money. So you're saying right now we're, yes. people are just making money? That's, what, that's the aim of it, yes. Right. So, and that's the problem, is that instead of actually looking at the natural process, mm. which you're right, food is what it's about, yeah. they're looking at the money which can be made from it, and mm. that actually takes us our eye off the ball. Yeah. And so we actually don't do what's the best way to make food for people. We actually think about as if we're making... A successful agricultural business is what's important, mm -hmm. not actually the food. Mm. But if we were really concerned on food, then we'd be doing agriculture very, very differently. We wouldn't have huge dairy farms. Mm. We'd have a very, very different agriculture. We'd have a lot of forests, a lot of agroforestry. Agri we'd have a lot of um, organic... Um, um, vegetarian type things mm -hmm. and we'd be able to, New Zealand would be able to have a very very much far greater population we'd actually be able to be a benefit to the world and actually allowing people especially refugees and so on from places where we're about because mm -hmm. New Zealand's got so much opportunity mm -hmm. for producing food but we're not doing that, we're producing money Okay. We're trying to. What you're saying is that we're producing a lot, but not to feed a population, uh, but to actually send it overseas in exchange for money. Yes, for, for, for lifestyle, very extractive lifestyles, and mm -hmm. a type of agriculture which is also very um, destructive and yeah. causing climate change. Mm -hmm. So we, we need to, that, that is unfortunately the sort yeah. of change which is necessary. It's a cultural change, it's a spiritual change which is needed. Mm -hmm. yeah. But haven't the other uh, communities sort of almost adapt, adapted uh, what the Western you know, philosophy is of like basically money, making the money, making, um, you know, reducing your costs and, and you know, manufacturing or, you know, producing things in bulk. So the overall cost of production is reduced and you have larger crops that can feed many people? Um, part of the problem there is that, um, and we have to go back to uh, land tenure, that when communities still are 
in ownership of their land and resources, then they actually don't need, and they're not actually interested in doing that. But once their land becomes capitalised and they are allowed to take mortgages on it, then they get trapped into that system of having to make money. Mm -hmm. yep. <clears throat> and um, so the, it's true, you're right, there's not many countries left in the world with cultures strong enough who've resisted that sort of capitalisation, mm. who are content to live in the natural environment and not try to um, live beyond their means by taking out loans, mm. which then means they have to become destructive in their practices yeah. so as to get money. Mm. Yeah. And, and in effect, really, overstepping what the planet can produce. Because we're now more than... Um, 50% more, using more, more than 50% um, more than what the world can produce. And that's not because of peop the, the population, that's because of the lifestyles. Mm -hmm. So when you say lifestyle, you're talking about... The, the consumption, um, like... The cons consumption, yes. like, across the board, or the farmer's lifestyle, or certain people in the middle who are making the money, Wh whose lifestyle are we talking okay, about? That's, that's a good question. Um, and it ties into the question that the problem is not the world's population. Because um, at the moment, um, places in Africa and um, Asia, they are not um, beyond what the planet can maintain. Mm -hmm. Even though they may have large populations, they are actually not going beyond what the um, planet can provide. Mm -hmm. But those cultures, which are, including New Zealand and Australia, are several hundred percent more consuming more, mm -hmm. um, on average, in that, in say and New Zealand, in Africa, and no, the New Zealand, in New Zealand, right. yeah, than yeah. what we um, we should be. Mm -hmm. Now, because we're only a small percentage, yeah, as well, <laughs> um, we need to decrease our research, our resource use many times mm -hmm. if we are to be um, yeah. near where we should be, okay. and. That's on average. Now, if we look in terms of social justice within the country, true, you could say that the, those who are the lowest social economic, um, I mean, they're not the ones causing the problem. No, you're right. It's, yeah. So there's that as well. Um, so um, climate change is really putting a lot of challenges in making us face up to how the injustices within a country and mm -hmm. internationally between countries yeah. is actually, um, that, it's also part of the education of what nature is teaching us, or you could say what God is teaching us through mm -hmm. creation about um, this is not mm -hmm. the way to, yeah. to live. 
Yeah, that gives me a good segue to move into our next discussion. And uh, we'll take a short break. And when we come back, uh, we're going to discuss how faith and culture can help us improve um, our ways of thinking towards climate change. Thanks so much for coming back um, to our last segment um, and I'm still talking with Keith and uh, we explored about what climate change is and um, how it's caused, um, who's causing um, and how we can actually track back and step back and look at okay, what are the options here and what we can do. So I'm going to explore a little bit uh, with Keith how faith and culture uh, can help us perhaps in our understanding of climate change and how we look at it and how we can improve our understanding. So Keith, tell us you know, wh where you're at with your research. Well, it's human ecological research, which means we're dealing with um, the co-evolutionary processes of humans interacting with other species. And that's sort of how I'm sort of thinking about climate change. Mm -hmm. And so what we know from those processes is that transformation is not something which can be planned or adaptation. Mm -hmm. um, transformational adaptation or big changes, that, that can't be sort of predicted what's going to work. Um, that comes out in the wash through the co-evolutionary process of selection. Mm -hmm. If you want to be resilient, you've got to make sure you've got enough options mm -hmm. available. And so whatever happens, you're going to have something which works. Okay. It's about being spreading your risk, yeah. developing opportunities so that no matter what happens, something will work. Right. And um, that's the process of um, being flexible, being adaptive. And traditional cultures have had to learn that, and they have got that. And that is inculcated in them. And it's religious rituals which inculcate those sorts of abilities. Now, for the listeners, are you able to give a cite any example of you know how a particular culture or um, a faith? Uh, I, can, I can give a very good example. Mm. In Fiji, right next to the university, where I was working at the the Lothalo um, campus in Suva, there was a squatter community right next door to the where the professors lived. Mm -hmm. It was, we say it's illegal, informal. Um, they're living in a mangrove swamp at sea level. Right. And they um, had a community that worked. They choose, chose to be there because there was employment, there was good schools, hospitals, mm. and 
they had very um, a very functional community in a very very difficult environment. Now that's an extreme example, but it's actually a very common example all around the world. The informal settlements around the world, um, some people argue, is where you truly find development. Mm -hmm. Some people will argue there's more development occurring informally than there is formally now. Mm -hmm. You think about the, the um, slums, in inverted commas, or the squatter communities all around the world. Mm. That's where the creativity and the innovation and so on is coming from. It's coming from people themselves. Now, the question and what we see very well in the South Pacific in these um, informal communities, as well as the traditional communities, that what enables them to be functional is their cultural practice. And as anthropologists have pointed out um, for a long time, what religious um, practices give is a feeling of the common good, mm -hmm. that you're with, it, with other people, a feeling for other people, mm -hmm. union with other people, and the sort of a sense of the equality of everybody. So we're all in this together. And so religious rituals give that sense. And they also give a sense of being creative. Mm. People talk about liminality, the sort of thinking out of the box or being creative and being innovative. That's also what religious rituals encourage, that sort of creative thought. That is what enables people to be adaptive and maintain flexible cultures. That's the purpose for this. Mm. And um, cultures, indigenous cultures, have got these practices because it enables them to survive mm -hmm. whatever changes yeah. occur in nature because they're able to, um, when the need arises, mm -hmm. be creative, yes. innovative, yeah. and then something will work out. And they're all in it together. Mm. They don't have to fight with each other. It's not yeah. like one person's going to win out and the other one's going to die, but we're all in this yes. together. We'll find yeah. some way and then we'll help each other. Oh, and in some I think um, the, it brings... To my memory, the um, the wildfires in Australia, and uh, I learned that the indigenous people used to uh, burn the uh, the ground level, the yeah. ground cover, um, every so often, so that major wildfires did not occur. So is that sort of the thing that you're referring to when it comes to culture and? Oh well, that, that that is an example of what indigenous. Uh, Indigenous Australians developed, and the history of that is that when our species first arrived in Australasia, um, that was when there was a, an ice age, and so I was able to cross into Australia and Tasmania. Tasmania was actually joined to Australia at that time. No humans had never been in that territory before, and um, like. And a lot of species were, became extinct, the large um, herbivores, just like in New Zealand, the more and so on, the large herbivores. Now, what happened then is that over a few thousand years, the culture developed to adapt to then replace the ecological function of the large herbivores by fire. Because mm -hmm. fire 
burning controlled fires yeah. fulfill the same ecological function as the, the large herbivores. And so that maintained the health of those mm-hmm. ecosystems in a stable way mm. so that the humans could then have a functional role within the ecosystem by mm. taking on the role of the large herbivores whom they had made extinct. So that's the sort of learning we need to learn. That's a very good example mm-hmm. of that sort of creative thought and yeah. development. Yeah, yeah. That's great. So, um, so in your research, you know, what, what are your findings now? Where is it getting at? Because on the flip side, if, you, if you're saying that, okay, you know, there are certain things in some cultures and faiths uh, which, you know, are helping us understand and... Uh, uh, well, it goes back to what... Um, it, when I'm in the Pacific, it's about it's a post-colonial um, agenda mm-hmm. because very fortunate in Samoa that the the um, people still have mm. access to their land. So it's about enabling them to not lose that. And so the post-colonial agenda there is to enable them to. Um, Uh, become free from the imposition of development which is going to not work for them. Mm -hmm. In New Zealand, it's like the the horse has already bolted and we've now got people desperate to even find housing. Yes. Um, So we're we're so far out of kilter Mm -hmm. that... um, for me, the, the agenda in New Zealand is much to like it was where I was at, at Lincoln University. It's about helping people have the experience so that they can keep hope that for youth to continue to believe that their ideals and their creativity is right, not to become cynical, that there is hope and that their creativity and their intelligence can actually find a way um, through this and to, um, to, to nurture that. Because right. that's what gives me hope, is that um, my generation will disappear, the new generation will come up, and all our, our um, excesses and problems will disappear. Hmm. If we can encourage a new generation not to take on our mistakes, mm-hmm. then it's going to be better. Right. And so it's <laughs> encouraging them that they, they that naturally their natural um, inclination towards hope and seeing the goodness in nature and to learn from it, including climate change and pandemics, mm. that, that, is, um, that that's right and that there is hope. That's me, the agenda now. So, it's, yeah. so that's a big problem you've touched upon. Um, you know, how, how, would, how would we go about actually resolving that issue? Um, and how do you link that to the climate change factor? Mm. Well, it's, um, the answer is actually this, what you're doing. Um, people are becoming aware of it. So you're mm-hmm. doing a, a podcast like this because yeah. you've got some sense that this sort of thing needs to be talked about. People are beginning to realise it. We've got the Green Party. We've got people beginning to talk about it. If people start talking about it, they start experiencing it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll do my bit by continuing to 
held retreats and in, in writing about it. Mm-hmm. And if we all do what we can do, then we're going to get through it because as a species, we, we, we can do it and, and as, a, as a culture. Yeah. And New Zealand, we've got the indigenous culture here, we've got... Yeah. Because it wasn't things. always like this, was it? Back in the day, I, I don't think it was that hard to buy a house or, you know, have um, <coughs> your own garden. And it's, I don't, I don't yes. think, in some cases, like, it's not that bad here. Um, I know there are a lot of people who, who probably can't grow um, fruits and veggies for themselves or just for their own family. Mm. And if you look at, like, Auckland and places, you know, which are really um, overpopulated and people have housing, but then... You know, they, they don't have a bit of land where they can grow a bit of fruits mm. or um, some sort of vegetable for themselves. They have to just rely on grocery stores to buy all these things. So how do the faith and culture can actually help us come yeah, out well, of this? That's a very good question. And um, we're, in a, we're in a transition. Like when I was younger, where I was brought up, um, we all, every Sunday, we all went to church. Everybody went to church, and it was a community. Well, my children, it's just, it's gone. So it was, it was lost in one generation. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying we go back to that, but what we're at the moment now in a very unusual situation where we don't have communities where people are um, united by um, sharing their... The ideals, their beliefs, their, their passion for each other, and and caring, and that needs to be recovered, and like, and it will emerge. Like I say, I, I've seen it in squatter communities. It will emerge, but it needs to be affirmed. And if it's not, it turns into gangs. And so that's we're seeing these sort of dysfunctional expression of it through gangs and criminal behaviour. So to me, it's we've got to somehow affirm that people need to be together. Mm-hmm. If you don't let them be together and have that common yeah. respect, yes. they'll form a gang. Mm-hmm. And you can't blame them for forming a gang. But now New Zealand yes. is becoming really multicultural. Mm. So, you know, which culture or... You know, is it going to be multicultural that's going to bring people closer together? And well, like I said, it's about um, diversity. Mm-hmm. That's what works. So we are very fortunate in having multiple cultures. In indigenous cultures, that, it's a, the idea that they are homogenous is, is, a, is, a, is a common and traditional means sort of um, uh, sort of. Uh, always doing the same thing. Mm. I mean, that's that's not so what traditional. That's also not good. That, well, that, monoculture. Well, it's monoculture is really only something which has come through modernization, right? Through yes. imposed. But a traditional culture is not like that. Traditional cultures are always mm. um, creative, and the the arts and the exploring, and always sort of different nuances. And every village was different. Correct. Yeah. Its own unique things, mm. and um, and I can relate to that in yeah. the sense that you know where I come from, India. Uh, every state, when you cross the border, the culture changed. And mm. when I say change, you could literally visually see it. 
in terms of their dressing, in terms of their cuisine, the kind mm -hmm. of food. Even though the ingredients were same, the food was totally different the way they, they would cook. Um, and you can see from one state to another how people had a different way of um, lifestyle, different way of dressing, different uh, folk, uh, singing and dance. Mm -hmm. And it's, in some ways that's sort of uh, getting erased. Um, so you're seeing that somehow we will be able to get back to that and in some I'm sense... I'm saying that it's, it's, that it's going us. to naturally happen and climate change is part of the pressure which is actually going to make that diversity occur. So at a, cult at a political level, mm -hmm. we should be enabling that to occur rather than trying to force us into this is the way we meant to no. be doing it. Okay. Yeah. So we should be... Um, celebrating and encouraging the diversity of cultures because a culture including indigenous culture is only benefited through learning from another culture a real mm -hmm. traditional culture doesn't close itself off it mm -hmm. learns from whatever other culture it can so as to enhance itself mm -hmm. if it's not doing that it will die mm. a traditional culture only continues to be a living culture if it is learning and interacting with other cultures, and that's how it continues to keep its uniqueness. Mm -hmm. It's precisely through its, its learning from other cultures that it continues to be creative and continue its own uniqueness and its own vitality. Right. And, and that means you can have multiple cultures all growing differently, yeah. but all supporting each other, mm -hmm. precisely because they're like that. So New Zealand's got a great opportunity to do that. And um, so we have to avoid any attempt of trying to sort of force a this is what New Zealand is or this is New Zealand because that will actually, just an attempt to try and um, not develop in the way we need to. And it's things like climate change which are actually making us realise, no, we have to be diverse, creative, innovative, explore, learn from each other and um, yeah, just let this diversity grow because that's what's going to give us that flexibility to find some way forward. In terms of like uh, fighting climate change or mm. understanding well, climate change? Yes, change. yes, right. yes. See. Mm. So like what are your last thoughts so that you can enlighten us with, um, especially when you were talking about the multiculture um, and New Zealand adapting or at least understanding other cultures and embracing them from, and you, you touched upon, you know, from a political point of view, enabling that. How, how do you envision it? Um. Well, the term is leadership, I think, trying to understand leadership. <laughs> and Māori have got that very well because leadership is also sovereignty, it's rangatirata. And so and that comes from belonging. So what's essential is that everybody who comes here is allowed and made to feel that they belong. Mm -hmm and that this is their home, and let them grow. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. and nurture that. And then the rest happens naturally. To me, that's the role at the political level, yeah. is to let people belong here and feel at home and um, say, we like this exotic flower you brought from India or mm -hmm. Samoa because this is going to benefit us and we want, we want this to grow. Mm -hmm. And that that is what will enable um, yeah. us to, to But flourish. some people will fear the multiculturalism. That's, that fear that, is... Oh, the ways we have yeah. lived, um, you know, our essence of what, what you know, there's, there's no particular thing that generally... I mean, there are a lot of things that means to be a Kiwi and what ways of being Kiwi. You know, what about the people who feel, who fear that, you know, that will be lost? Well, I'd, sorry to say this, but they are the ones who actually don't feel they belong. That's why they're doing that. That's why they have fear, because they actually themselves are not being true to themselves. And that's a tragedy, because I see them all the time. Yeah. They feel they're bitter because they have not actually been true to themselves. They've been trying to play up to something else, and that never works. Right. They have to be true to themselves. Yeah. Maybe they, they rejected some part of their culture in the past, and they haven't been true to themselves, and now they're bitter, and now they're afraid to see other people who actually have got that confidence and that belonging. And they're resentful, but it's, it's a reflection of themselves. Yeah. So what we need to do is we need to be compassionate and not sort of... Um, so you mean to those people? To those people, fear, yes, who are afraid. We need to yeah. be compassionate towards them. In, in Christchurch, I mean, when we think about what happened here a couple of years ago, mm. mass shooting, I mean, as Australian, but obviously support here in New Zealand, we need to be compassionate towards people who are so twisted that they are feeling like that. But at the same time, we have to have boundaries. So it's, it's like bringing up a child. We can see the goodness in them, but we know that we need to have boundaries so we allow them to grow up. Um, and when they make mistakes, we're compassionate. So that is the sort of political leadership we need. And we're fortunate at the moment we've got that. Mm. Um, and um, we need that sort of leadership generally in the community. Yeah. And I think we have. We're very fortunate in New Zealand. <coughs> Generally, have got that mm -hmm. attitude. But if you look around the world, um, the in the political scenario, at least, you know, some people, or some countries, are going the right wing mm. way and being mm. very protectionist and very um, um, nationalist. How are we going to protect uh, that innocence and, and continue yeah. the good thing that, that is happening right now? Um, going forward yep. Yep. Um, in New Zealand context. Yes, I understand. Um, this draws very deeply on, on the religious wisdom, I think, and um, what religions teach us here. And it's a very difficult thing to learn and to accept. But we need the emotional intelligence to recognise that 
as an adult, once you get into adulthood, we no longer living for ourselves, we are living for the next generation. We're beginning to die for the next generation. That mm. We're giving our life for the next generation. That is what it is to be an adult. Wow, okay. Of any really species, profound. for any species. Yeah, that's really profound. And um, we have to do that willingly, mm -hmm. and we have to go with that. Now, in some countries you can do that blissfully and happily <laughs> with grandchildren, great-grandchildren. Yes. In other countries, actually, it's, it's, uh, it's a martyrdom, to put it bluntly. Mm. And... Um, but if you do what you have to do willingly in the situation you are, you're going to make it better. Mm -hmm. and we can only, we can either do the right thing and make it better. We can't change it, but we can actually at least do the right Improve thing it. to make it better. Mm -hmm. And that means it's going to get better rather than worse. So we can always do something to make it better. Yeah. And that means willingly... Um, <laughs> You put others first. That's what it means. Yeah. Well, on that note, I really want to thank you for uh, coming on the show and uh, talking to us and explaining about climate change and also how faith and culture can help us improve our understanding and, and get things better. Thank you so much, Keith. You've been listening to The Common Good. This show will be broadcasted every second Friday at 11 a.m. and repeats every fourth Sunday at 1 p.m. The show has been made possible through the efforts of Lady Khadija Trust and with funding from Office of Ethnic Communities.